Good morning. Before I begin, I want to say two things. The first thing is thank you. I am so grateful to be part of a congregation that invites me up here to do this. Over the past couple weeks, people have told me how much they are excited for me and that they're praying for me and that they're thinking of me. And that's meant the world to me. So thank you guys. And the second thing is a disclaimer. Now, when John Jay asked me to preach, he asked me what passages in the Bible I was the most familiar with or that were really close to my heart. And I told him, I love Isaiah 58, but I'm not sure if I can preach on it. Because it's something that I struggle to do personally, and it's something I struggle to live out. But he told me something that I think I want to share with you. He told me that when you're preaching, you're not talking at people, you're talking with people. So today, I want to talk with you through this. Now back to fasting. When we hear passages about Old Testament rituals, our first response is to zone out. I don't know about you, but I typically don't offer burnt offerings or ceremonially wash my hands before I rave at church each Sunday. We often view fasting in the same way. It's a thing that a bunch of people did a long time ago that most of us don't practice today. But we have to realize something right off the bat. God never mentions the abstinence of food in this entire passage. This leads me to believe that maybe the food was never the point. Now, the Bible is the grand narrative of God at work in our world. The first half is written from the perspective of the Israelites, struggling to be the people of God in the midst of the culture surrounding them. It begins with Abraham, who was called from his home to follow a God who is so different from all the gods in the cultures around him. Due to famine, this new people travels to Egypt. And once in Egypt, a nation is born. But eventually, the people are bound in slavery to the Egyptians. They cry out, praying that somehow the God of the universe, who seems so distant, would come and rescue them. And he did. After this, they are given the law through Moses. God dwelled directly in their midst, yet they still lost sight of him. Forty years were spent wandering aimlessly in the desert. Finally, they move into the promised land, and they prosper. They follow their religious laws. The world seems stable and happy, and the people of God always seem to win in the end. But in the midst of their comfortable lives, they forgot what true worship was. They began to distance themselves from God as they embraced thousands of religious laws. But when the mighty empires of Assyria and Babylon marched in with robust power, their entire world shatters. Thousands are deported. Thousands are killed. They are enslaved in a land without their temple, without their priests, without their religious practices, 
without any sense of their identity. Their entire world is upside down. As this exile period finally fades, the people return to a broken land and try to pick up all the pieces resting all around them. They cling to whatever sliver of the past they can grasp. They cling to their religion. It becomes their source of comfort. Over time, Israel begins to rebuild and restore their home. But soon, they begin to worship the idea of their religious past and forget the people they were called to be. Religion becomes a means of trying to manipulate God. And their frustration simmers because God just doesn't seem to be buying their religion. But Israel fell into a trap that we see so prevalent in our lives today. We idealize our past just as they idealize their past. Now, this is quite a natural progression for people as a whole. It begins with comfort and happiness and ease of life. Then, some type of burden or challenge comes our way, and it rocks our world. It could be disaster. It could simply be change. When you're a teenager in the middle of finals week, you begin to glorify the days of elementary school and no responsibilities. And we all know that kid that was the coolest kid in our high school. Probably captain of the football team and extremely involved in the school. Everybody knew their name. But ten years later, somehow they got stuck in a time lapse. The kid who didn't quite move on when they walked across the stage. They come to all the football games in their letter jacket, telling anyone who will listen about the glory days. If he could just be in high school again, life would be grand. Let's just go back to the comfort of the good old days. Maybe if we could reconstruct our lives to be just like they were before, we could be happy again. We could take it a step further and look at our country. With elections coming up, we talk of wanting to bring America back to its prime, its glory days. For some, this might be the 80s. For others, the 50s. Maybe the 1800s. <laughs> For many, the 1770s. Because if we could just be the Americans of that particular time, our country would be golden. But our friends across all of these eras thought the same about the people before them. And the people before them thought the same about the people before them. And it goes on and on and on. However, we run into a problem we are not the people we were before. Since the foundation of the United States, we've been through a civil war, two world wars, conflicts in Korea, in Vietnam, 
and numerous years of fighting in the Middle East. Not to mention a devastating depression. We've seen things that make us ache inside just to think about. Plane crashes, bombings, shootings. Yet we've also done beautiful things. We fought for equality. We've experienced a technological revolution. We even put a man on the moon. As a people, we've accomplished much, good and bad. To try to be the people we once were, we deny the places we've been. We pretend that we could be those people, but in reality, we can't. Because we've seen things, and we've heard things, and we've been involved in things that have changed us as a people and have changed the world that we live in. Now, being conscious of the past is not bad. It can be quite a good thing. We see our triumphs and our pitfalls and discover parts of who we are through them. Even Christ owned his past heritage. But there is a difference between remembering and appreciating the past and serving the past. When Jesus is confronted about fasting in Mark, he says, No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. When we force new wine into old wineskins, both the wine and the skins completely fall apart. When we constrain the people of God to be a stagnant entity, never changing, never acting, we begin to fall apart. Because we've seen things and we've done things, beautiful and terrible. I read a story from a pastor. A group of Christians went to a major metropolitan area and spent a night out on the streets with the homeless. That night brought winds and rain and that chill that just doesn't seem to disappear no matter how many blankets you're wrapped in. Now these people were well-respected Christians. The leader was even a pastor of a local church. They arrived at the outer doors of a church in the city, enticed by the warmth and the light. As they trooped up to the entrance, a security guard stopped them. He told them honestly, I was hired to keep homeless people like you out. And as they sat in the cold that night, they realized that we so often lock God's children out of our churches. As the body, we easily lose sight of why 
we are religious. There's a C.S. Lewis quote that I love. It was not in them. It was only through them. Religion can certainly be a medium to find and to serve God. But it is not God. Religion is not the point. Jesus only had a three-year ministry. And during that, he seemed quite a bit more concerned with the lost and the hurting than he did with a lack of religion. He was much more concerned with taking care of the least of these. Though being the people of God looks different in different places, in cultures, in times, the core ideas will always hold the body together. We are called to loose the chains of injustice and to set the oppressed free. We're charged to break every yoke, to share our food with the hungry, and provide shelter to those without, to clothe the naked when we see them, to leave behind all oppression and malice that tries to fight its way into our lives. We are called to spend ourselves on behalf of the hungry and to satisfy the needs of the oppressed. We are called to be the hands and the feet of God, working in the world to bring a piece of the kingdom of God to all people. As the people of God, we are called to bring Christ's vision to earth, his vision of grace and restoration. Sometimes this is quite hard for us to live out, especially with our blinders on. The things we are called to do force us to take them off and to truly see the world around us. We are called to break every yoke, not just the yokes of the people that deserve it, because they're good people who just had a bad stroke of luck. No. Every yoke. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we do not deserve the grace that Christ has lavishly poured out on us. We will never deserve it. So how can we expect others to earn grace if we were given it freely? We are called to see the people who are difficult for us to see. We struggle to really look at suffering. When we see the homeless on the street corners, we look aside. Because maybe if we ignore them long enough, then they'll just go away. We've trained ourselves to keep our distance from God because maybe then we can keep our distance from his children. We are called to spend ourselves on behalf of the hungry. Not just give a little money or help out occasionally, 
but to truly spend ourselves. To release our clenched fists that hold our wallets and our time, and to pour ourselves out for the people created in the image of God. We are called to pour ourselves out for the least of these. The least of these are the outsiders, the outcasts. Whether it be those in poverty or with disabilities, those with broken families or rough pasts, those struggling with addictions or depression, we are called to serve them. That is the religion that God desires. We miss the point when we try to make religion only a personal process, forgetting our community. We miss it when we idealize our past and try only to recreate it. We miss it when we let apathy rule our lives and accept ideas without actions. But what if we let go of our apathy and our idealized pasts? What if we really looked at the people in our community, even if what we saw hurt? What if we tried to live into the grand narrative of the people of God? Well, we'd certainly be uncomfortable. It would require living with intention and with meaning. It would require us to go beyond what we're used to. It would require a lot, no doubt. So how uncomfortable are we willing to be? As the church, we are in a season of Lent. Lent is a time of drawing near to God as we try to walk in Christ's footsteps. Christ walked with and loved and spent himself on the least of these. He never seemed too concerned with reputation or personal comfort. Maybe if we could spend a season like this, abandoning notions of comfort, we could experience God's idea of true religion, one that acts, restores, and mends the breaches in a broken world. Will you please pray with me? Lord, thank you for who you are. And thank you for this community. Guide us as we try to be your hands and your feet in the midst of our community. To bring love and to bring peace, not just within these walls, but outside of them. In Christ's name, amen.